Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. In this episode, we return to the Pacific for the two great carrier battles of the early war, the Coral Sea and Midway. This episode has been a lot of fun for me to research and write. Unlike land doctrine and tactics, which I already have a pretty solid grasp on, I didn't really know much about carrier tactics or naval doctrine, so I ended up getting really into carrier doctrine and tactics in this episode, and use it as a sort of vignette to examine how large-scale theory can determine the outcome of tactical engagements. This episode begins another run of Pacific-themed episodes. After this, we will discuss the Aleutian Islands campaign, then shift our focus down to Guadalcanal. After wrapping on at least the early part of Guadalcanal, we'll go back to Europe and North Africa and cover 2nd El Alamein and Rommel's big defeat there. From there, we go to Operation Torch and finally wrap 1942, but that's still a little ways down the road. Right now, I think we should begin episode 25, Yamamoto's Gambit. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget. Back in the Pacific in mid-April 1942, Ngumo's striker has just returned from the raids in the Indian Ocean, and Doolittle has delivered a strategically insignificant, yet psychologically devastating blow to the Japanese. In a perhaps hubristic response, Admiral Yamamoto vowed to push American forces even further from Japan, prevent another embarrassing strike from landing so close to the sacred ears of the Emperor. To accomplish this, he initiated Operation M.O., Yamamoto dispatched two fleets to capture Port Moresby in southeastern New Guinea and the island of Tulagi in the Solomon Islands off the eastern tail of New Guinea. This would have the added benefit of further forcing American sea traffic further east when traveling to Australia. When American naval intelligence analyzed Japanese signal traffic and concluded that the Japanese were headed for Moresby, Admiral Nimitz dispatched a fleet of his own leading to the first large surface action of the Pacific War and the first battle between ships over the horizon the Battle of the Coral Sea. Tulagi fell without resistance, but Port Moresby would never fall into Japanese hands. The USS Yorktown was already off the coast of Australia under Admiral Jack Fletcher's Task Force 17, and was soon joined by the USS Lexington, which steered southwest from Hawaii as soon as Nimitz knew what was happening. With the battleship fleet sailing east to San Diego, all support vessels were now available to assist the carriers so Lexington had all of the destroyers and colliers available she could desire. As Admiral Inoue rounded the eastern end of New Guinea, confident that he had the element of surprise, and believing his eastern approaches to be guarded by the Tulagi force, was quite astonished to learn that the Americans had the jump on him. Because he had a dozen troop carriers with him, Admiral Inoue was assigned two fleet carriers, the Shokaku and the Zukaku, as well as the new light carrier Shoho. First contact between the forces was made on May 4th, the day after the landing on Tulagi began. Fletcher launched three airstrikes against the invaders, which accomplished little other than letting the Japanese know the Americans were there. 
For the next three days, the fleet searched frantically for one another, until May 7th, when the Japanese Air Patrol located the oiler Neosho and her destroyer escort. The pilot who spotted the vessels mistook the oiler for a carrier, though, causing Admiral Takagi to unleash a full anti-carrier sortie against it. This certainly bought Fletcher time, as the Japanese were now distracted, concentrating their efforts on a mere fueler and destroyer. At nearly the same time, the American aviators spotted part of the Port Moresby fleet and dispatched two-thirds of their air fleet against it. Unfortunately, the two main carriers were not with this element, but the Shoho was. This single light carrier would bear the brunt of the American air arm. She repulsed the first wave with heavy anti-air fire, but the second wave, from the Yorktown, absolutely hammered her. With a span of about 10 minutes, she was struck by 13 1,000-pound bombs and 7 torpedoes. The first carrier-on-carrier action had occurred with a loss of only three American aircraft. In light of the action on 7 May, the Japanese retired the amphibious force, but remained alert. At dawn on May 8th, both forces had their air patrols up and being only 200 miles apart, spotted each other by 7.30 in the morning. Each launched dive and torpedo bomber groups at one another. At 10.30 in the morning, the Yorktown's complement found the Shokaku. Though they hit the Japanese carrier twice, the American pilots mostly overshot their targets. Torpedoes were dropped too far away, and the pilots didn't lead the Japanese vessels enough to account for their speed. One of those 1,000-pound bomb hits from a dauntless dive bomber struck the Shokaku's deck, preventing her from launching any more sorties, though, effectively putting her out of action for the rest of the battle. At 11.40 in the morning, the Lexington's aircraft found her and inflicted more superficial damage. Meanwhile, the Japanese air crews were looking to strike at the American ships. The 69-plane-strong Japanese strike group found the Yorktown at 11.20 and scored some hits, but not enough to slow her down. The Lexington would not be so lucky. Japanese Kate torpedo bombers conducted a coordinated attack on her bow and stern simultaneously, overwhelming her defenses. They managed to disable the deck elevators, but more importantly, damaged the aviation fuel system, causing massive amounts of flammable fuel vapor to fill the air around her. At noon, the first of many gas explosions would ultimately destroy the ship. For the next five hours, her crew would fight valiantly to save her, but by five o'clock, the ship was too far gone and the flames became unstoppable. As the fires raged, her aircraft were diverted to the Yorktown, but she had to be abandoned. Later, the unaccompanied hull was sunk by a Japanese torpedo. In the end, the Battle of the Coral Sea was essentially a draw, though it left the Americans in the better strategic position. American losses constituted one carrier, one destroyer, one fueler, 69 planes, and 656 men. The Japanese, for their part, lost one light carrier, one destroyer, 92 aircraft, and 900 men. This doesn't reflect the real outcome of the battle, though. First, the Japanese landing at Port Moresby was repelled, preventing them from ever capturing the whole of the New Guinea island. Second, both the Shokaku and Jukaku were severely damaged, forcing them to return to base for repairs, preventing them from being available for the first great sea battle of the war, Midway. Midway was an operational gambit on the part of Yamamoto. He wanted to accomplish two things. First, he wanted to capture the island of Midway, about a thousand miles west of Hawaii, with the expectation that holding an airfield right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean would offer him operational reach enough to interdict any American fleet movements and prevent another Doolittle raid. Second, he wanted to ambush the American fleet. He chose to do this by sending a smaller invasion force north 
to the Aleutian Islands to act as bait. When the Americans sailed to relieve the islands and were sufficiently fatigued, he would pounce on them with his main fleet, consisting of four fleet carriers. His plan was doomed from the start, mostly because of the aforementioned ability of American naval intelligence to decipher Imperial Japanese naval codes. Nimitz knew Yamamoto's plan before it even began. Through a bit of counterintelligence trickery, naval intelligence was able to confirm the objective of Operation MI. Naval cryptanalysts suspected Midway was the objective, but to confirm it, had the garrison send a seemingly innocuous message through their usual channels stating that the island was low on fresh water. When they decoded the Japanese message traffic and saw that they stated their objective was short on water, they knew what the Japanese objective was. Secondly, it's not even really clear that Nimitz would have dispatched his valuable carriers in such a reactive manner anyway. Even if he hadn't known the plan from the start, why would he send his carriers to remote Alaskan islands in the far north? Remember kids, if you want to bait your enemy into doing something dumb, strike at something he actually cares about, not worthless islands in the middle of nowhere far from strategic objectives. The only real value the Aleutians had was in protecting the Lend-Lease convoys to Vladivostok. Aware of Yamamoto's intended mischief, Nimitz decided to repay it with a little mischief of his own. He positioned his fleet of 73 ships and three carriers, the Enterprise, Hornet, and newly repaired Yorktown, 350 miles northeast of Midway. The fleet was ready to pounce on Yamamoto's carriers from their left flank as they neared the island. Nimitz had effectively set a counter ambush. While Nimitz commanded the whole Pacific Theater from Hawaii, Admirals Raymond Spruance and Jack Fletcher commanded the ships at sea. Spruance had taken over for Halsey, who had to be hospitalized and commanded Task Force 16, containing the Enterprise and Hornet. He was joined by Jack Fletcher's Task Force 17, now short of the Lexington, after losing her at the Coral Sea. Though disjointed command is typically a recipe for disaster, the two commanders worked together under Nimitz's guidance from Pearl. This disjointed command was not haphazard, however. American naval doctrine effectively dictated it at this point. American naval strategists saw no reason to group all of their carriers together in one large task force, because it meant that if one carrier was spotted, the whole task force was doomed. Being separated would prevent that, and theoretically not affect their ability to launch attacks on enemy carriers. Though coordinating air fleets launched over the horizon from one another would prove very difficult to coordinate in practice. As we'll see, naval doctrine would directly impact carrier tactics and determine the outcome of the battle, and likely the war. It's pretty unusual for doctrine, strategy, and tactics to converge so thoroughly in one place and one time the way they did at Midway, which makes it a very interesting battle to study and a difficult one to completely wrap your mind around. The individual maneuvers are only slightly more complicated to track than your standard land battle, but overall it's kind of cut and dry. The wrinkles come in when you account for how the conditions were set for the battle to play out the way they did. American and Japanese carrier doctrine and tactics were actually pretty dissimilar in 1942. Both had begun developing their carrier doctrines in 1922, when the 1922 Naval Accords forced them both to limit their numbers of capital ships, causing them to use carriers, which were still viewed as auxiliary vessels, as a release valve for hulls and tonnage. Even in the early interwar years, everyone realized that carriers were there to stay, but right up until and into the 1940s, most naval thinkers still conceived of the battleship as the premier capital ship. Initially, 
Carriers were there to act as spotters for battleship guns, repel enemy scouts, and conduct anti-submarine, or ASW, warfare. This role gradually expanded throughout the 1920s and 30s, until carriers and their complement of aircraft became powerful weapon systems in and of themselves. During this time, American and Japanese tactics and techniques divided significantly. The Japanese very much oriented their carrier air fleets toward massive strikes against known targets. Hence, their massive success in the first six months of the war against harbors and ports. American naval doctrine centered around engaging other carriers, and this simple doctrinal difference would result in a myriad of tactical and procedural differences. In terms of actual carrier air operations, this led to the Japanese assuming they would have ample time to prepare their air fleets. This meant arming and fueling planes below deck in the hangar, then launching and assembling them. They had plenty of time to organize their forces in the air. The deck load spot technique developed to achieve this made coordination between carrier air components easier. Each carrier would contribute an element of the attack force, dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and escort fighters. The main drawback to Japanese carrier doctrine was that they had no scouting element. They relied on float planes stationed on cruisers to conduct their reconnaissance. This made sense when attacking stationary port facilities, but not so much when trying to cover hundreds or even thousands of square miles of ocean to spot an enemy carrier. Japanese doctrine kind of assumed that no enemy carriers would be in the vicinity when conducting carrier operations, or that spotting enemy carriers would be simple. Neither of these preconceptions would play out well for the Imperial Japanese Navy. American carrier doctrine, on the other hand, was very much oriented towards finding and destroying enemy carriers. A full quarter of a given carrier's air complement was composed of scouts, which served equally well as dive bombers, at least in this early stage of the war. An American carrier's air complement consisted of 18 fighters, 18 dive bombers, 18 torpedo bombers, and 18 scouts. Though the scouts could perform the exact same role and flew the exact same aircraft as the dive bombers, the real difference was that the air arm was organized to perform the scout role at all. Japanese carrier air groups consisted of 21 fighters, 21 dive bombers, and 21 torpedo bombers. You may notice that the total number of American aircraft exceeds that of the Japanese, 72 to 63 per carrier. This again came down to tactics, techniques, and procedures developed in the interwar years. Because the Japanese stored all of their aircraft under the flight deck in the hangar, they could not hold as many aircraft. Their smaller carriers only compounded this difference. American aviators had no problem utilizing a deck park, keeping their aircraft on the decks of their carriers while en route, allowing them to bring more aircraft to bear. So, despite the fact that they devoted a quarter of their aircraft to scouting, they really weren't at that much of a disadvantage. In a pinch, their scouts could be launched at the enemy anyway. The Japanese were also much more confident in their torpedo bombers. American aviators weren't comfortable with flying in low and slow to launch their fish, whereas the Japanese were perfectly fine with it. Americans also saw no particular advantage in striking below the waterline. The main reason American commanders ever retained the torpedo bomber was so they could use them against battleships. A carrier's deck was thin enough that dive bombers could penetrate it, unlike battleships. The only place their armor was penetrable was under the waterline with a well-placed torpedo. Otherwise, they may have scrapped them entirely. As the aviators pondered and experimented with how best to organize their air groups, the surface commanders concerned themselves with protecting the actual carriers. Everyone recognized their extremely potent offensive potential, but for the most part, they were relatively vulnerable and soft targets. Right up until Pearl Harbor, 
American aviators and surface commanders wrestled over which vessel, the carrier or the battleship, held primacy in the fleet. The surface commanders still believed the battleship to be the king of sea battles, but the aviators thought the battleships were holding them back. The battleships were too slow and literally held the carriers back. They believed fast, evasive maneuvers were the key to a carrier's survival in battle, and slow battleships would prevent them from executing those maneuvers. Ultimately, the loss of the battleship fleet at Pearl Harbor would decide for them. The carriers would have to strike out on their own as soon as possible, and not wait for the battleships to be repaired. When they did strike out, they did so in onesies and twosies, as Task Force 17 did at the Coral Sea. With each carrier, there typically sailed two cruisers and three destroyers in a wagon wheel formation to provide a protective screen against enemy aircraft and submarines. A fueler would typically accompany the fleet as well. Additionally, the ships were all designed to have a cruising speed of 30 knots to increase efficiency. The Japanese brought their battleships with them and still considered them to be the center of the fleet, but did not feel the need to separate their carriers to keep them safe. Instead, they developed the box formation, in which four carriers would sail together in a four-square formation, with their attending escorts surrounding them and the battleships in the rear. This way, they maximized the defensive capability around their precious flat tops. This, of course, came with the risk that if any one carrier was discovered, they were all discovered, and every enemy aircraft would be vectored towards them. All of these developments would come together at the Battle of Midway. Going into the battle, Admiral Yamamoto had six carriers and 272 carrier-borne aircraft at his disposal throughout the entire theater. Opposite him, Nimitz only had four carriers available, and theoretically 288 aircraft throughout his entire area of operations. These would not necessarily be the numbers present at the battle, though. As we already discussed, Nimitz lost the USS Lexington at the Battle of the Coral Sea, and Yamamoto's two carriers from that battle would not be available at Midway, reducing the Imperial Japanese Navy's effective carrier strength by two. Nimitz also had an advantage as the defender, in the form of land-based aircraft stationed at Midway. When these advantages and disadvantages combined, the situation at Midway was not as dire as it could have been. Yamamoto dispatched Nagumo to lead his carrier battle group of four carriers, the Akagi, Kaga, Hiryu, and Siryu, with 248 aircraft and an additional 16 reconnaissance float planes. Yamamoto would sail with the fleet aboard his flagship, the battleship Yamato. Nimitz dispatched Task Forces 16 and 17, with Fletcher acting as the senior commander with three total carriers, Yorktown, Enterprise, and Hornet, with 233 aircraft underway and an additional 127 land-based aircraft at Midway. The Yorktown barely making it to the battle due to damage suffered at the Coral Sea. The men at the port facilities in Hawaii worked non-stop for 72 hours straight to get her back in fighting shape so she could be available again. First contact was made on June 3, 1942, when a Catalina flying boat from Midway spotted the Japanese fleet at 9 o'clock in the morning. Having spotted the enemy fleet, a flight of B-17s and Catalina flying boats was dispatched in an attempt to bomb the Japanese. If you remember our discussion from episode 17, high-altitude bombers are absolutely dreadful at destroying ships underway. So the B-17s scored no hits, but they did alert the Japanese that the Americans knew they were there. About 16 hours later, at 1 in the morning of June 4th, a Catalina flying boat launched a successful torpedo attack against a Japanese oiler and sank her the first casualty of the battle. The next morning, Nagumo launched his first air raid at the island. 
At 0430, Nagumo was 240 miles from Midway and launched nine bomber squadrons armed with fragmentation munitions and four escort squadrons of Zeros, equaling 72 bombers and 36 fighters. The attack was a moderate success. Marine Major Floyd Parks led his fighters into the sky to intercept the Japanese and scored some kills at a dire cost. For the five Japanese aircraft they took down, they lost two Wildcats and 13 outdated Brewster Buffalo fighters. Anti-air fire from Midway downed another three Japanese aircraft. The Japanese inflicted serious damage on ground facilities on the island, but not enough to convince the raid's leader that the job was done. Not knowing that the American fleet was only a few hundred miles away, right next door in the scale of the Pacific Ocean, Nagumo agreed to rearm the strike force with ground attack munitions. Problematically, though, the decks of his carriers already had torpedoes and armor-piercing bombs prepared in anticipation of rearming for carrier strikes. The deck crews of Nagumo's carriers would now have to bring ground attack bombs up. This would consume precious time and prove a fatal mistake. But Nagumo was acting completely in accordance with the Japanese carrier doctrine. Only half of his aircraft had been sent on the raid of Midway, and the other half kept his reserve, armed with anti-ship ordnance. At 7.15 a.m., he had ordered the reserve planes to be rearmed with ground attack munitions on the account of the recommendation of his subordinate. At 7.28, the Japanese finally spotted the Americans, but it wasn't until nearly 9 o'clock in the morning that an American carrier was definitively spotted along with torpedo bombers. Nagumo now understood the grievousness of his mistake. He had a decision to make. He could continue to rearm and refuel the land strike force that had just arrived, or just send out the aircraft he had prepared. In accordance with doctrine, he chose to consolidate his force rather than dispatch an incomplete one, as an American commander would likely have cho chosen to do. Despite the fact that his second strike on Midway had already returned, his decks were crowded with aircraft rearming and refueling. It was in this vulnerable state that the first American aircraft found the Japanese fleet. An hour after Nagumo's raiders were launched, visual contact was re-established by another Catalina flying boat. This prompted Spruance and Fletcher to begin preparations for an attack of their own. The three carriers began maneuvering to get into position to launch their aircraft at 7 a.m. The first sortie was aloft by 9 a.m. 150 American aircraft were searching for their targets, and the two fleets were only separated by a scant 175 miles. At 9.30, the first wave of American aircraft arrived and was repelled. The fighter screen did its job mercilessly. Within the span of about 10 minutes, all of the Hornets and 10 of the Enterprise's torpedo bombers had been destroyed. Forced to fly in low and slow, the torpedo bombers were easy pickings for the fast and maneuverable Zeros. The dive bomber force never found the Japanese fleet, as Nagumo had taken evasive maneuvers to avoid detection. Evasive maneuver essentially just being random changes in heading to make the fleet untrackable and forcing pursuers to engage in guesswork and rely on luck to find their targets. That's why a map of carrier battles are often so hard to decipher and look like spaghetti. Worse, for the Americans, the entire escort fighter force was lost, not to enemy action, but to just running out of fuel. They didn't have the range to return to their carriers, so their pilots were forced to ditch them uselessly into the ocean. Nagumo had evaded destruction from the first American wave, and taken quite a few American aircraft down. Pressure from the American attack had slowed operations on the Japanese carrier decks, though, and delayed them launching their next sorties, yielding yet more time to Fletcher and Spruance. About an hour later, another wave of American aircraft 
found the Japanese. First, 41 torpedo bombers attacked the Japanese carriers. They came in low and slow and were cut to ribbons. Only six ever returned to their motherships. The Zeros came down on them hard, but this left the fleet vulnerable to attack from higher altitude. This is exactly what happened next. From 14,000 feet, Lieutenant Commander Wade McCluskley led his force of 37 dauntless dive bombers down on the Japanese carriers and altered the course of the Pacific War. At 10.25 a.m. on June 4, 1944, Yamamoto's six months of absolute freedom of maneuver in the Pacific came to an end. McCluskey's aviators found the Japanese carriers laden with aircraft, fuel lines, and ordnance. Fuel lines crisscrossed the decks of Nagumo's carriers, and aircraft loaded for bear with high explosives crowded their surfaces. Akagi was struck first. A bomb hit the torpedo storage area and sparked a fire that threatened the whole ship. Next hit was Kaga, whose fuel lines were ignited. She suffered four direct hits and had to be abandoned by her crew within 20 minutes. Suryu was hit by three bombs next, which started a fire among the aircraft staged on deck and shut down her engine room. She would be sunk by a submarine later that day. Only the Hiryu survived the first day of battle, only to be discovered the next day by a flight of dive bombers, which forced her to be scuttled by her crew. The Japanese weren't the only ones to lose carriers that day, though. Aircraft from Hiryu found the Yorktown and struck her with two different flights. The first arrived at 12.20 and damaged her significantly. A second strike force found her again at 14.45 and disabled her. She would be destroyed after the battle when a Japanese submarine found her and sank her while being towed back to Pearl. Thanks to the American doctrine of keeping their carriers separated though, the Japanese never found the Hornet or Enterprise. Here, at Midway, years of carrier doctrine and tactics development came down to determine the outcome of events over the span of only a few hours. Japanese strike doctrine precluded them from engaging in heavy reconnaissance, allowing the Americans to seize the initiative by spotting them first. Japanese strike doctrine, being geared toward base strikes, informed Nagumo's decision to wait to launch a force against the American fleet until that whole force was armed, rather than dispatching a smaller one. This resulted in the Americans catching the Japanese in an incredibly vulnerable position. American doctrine of carrier destruction likely won them the day. It gave them the advantage in spotting the enemy first, and it prompted them to launch attacks when available. Second, their doctrine of keeping carriers separated prevented the Japanese from ever spotting one of their task forces. Conversely, by grouping their entire strike group together, the Japanese guaranteed that if one carrier was discovered, they all were. The advantages in defensive capability did not pay off for them. Though, later in the war, the US fleet would adopt the box formation of four carriers themselves. The one major disadvantage the Americans had was their propensity to throw attacks out piecemeal. Sure, the Japanese insistence on massive attacks had the drawback that if they were caught between strikes, they were extremely vulnerable, but it meant that when their aircraft found their targets, they could attack with overwhelming force. The American way of just launching individual flights when they were ready resulted in uncoordinated and small attacks, like the two flights of torpedo bombers that were annihilated because they were unsupported. Had they arrived with proper escorts and coordinated with dive bombers, the Zeros would have had to spread themselves out more thinly, and maybe a few torpedoes would have struck home. It was pure luck that brought a flight of dive bombers down right at the moment when the Zeros were all at low altitude. Midway had changed the course of the entire Pacific War. The Japanese had been reduced from six fleet carriers to only two, whereas the Americans now had three operational. And Midway had been an incredibly deadly battle. 
307 men lost their lives with the 150 American aircraft, the single carrier, and single destroyer that were sunk. These were light compared with Japanese losses. Along with their four fleet carriers, they lost one cruiser and 248 aircraft, and 3,000 men were lost to the sea. The American fleet managed to rescue only 37 Japanese sailors and aviators from the waves. The Pacific wouldn't see another large fleet engagement for two years, but during that time, the Japanese would only add six more carriers to their fleet, whereas American industry would pump out 14 fleet carriers, nine light carriers, and 66 escort carriers. During that time, technology and design would progress too. Every ship would become armed to the teeth with anti-aircraft guns, and damage control measures would improve too. The next time American and Japanese carriers would meet, the calculus for victory would be very different. But that was a long way off, and the Americans were getting ready to turn over to the offensive. The Marines would be the first to push back against the Japanese tide when they landed on Guadalcanal, beginning the three-year-long drive to the Japanese home islands. 